you know, Canada tends to be quite high on ambition mm-hmm. and sometimes a bit, you know, less strong on the follow through and the how uh, of all of this. And I think this is increasingly becoming recognized within the energy and climate space that the moving yeah. from the what to the how yeah. on emissions reductions is, you know, that is has got to be job one. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 053, number 53 of the Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having at the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee, during a taxi ride, over dinner, or stuck in an airport departure lounge. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. On to today's podcast and today's guest. I'm Monica Gattinger. I'm a professor at the University of Ottawa and chair of Positive Energy. Monica joined me for a conversation on the work of Positive Energy. Full disclosure here, I am a member of the Advisory Council of Positive Energy, and my organization has been supporting the Positive Energy Research and Engagement Program since the initiative was launched six years ago. Monica and I talk about Positive Energy's mandate to identify how to strengthen public confidence in energy decision-making, and how this has evolved with a greater focus on climate change and net zero aspirations. We also talk about the need to innovate our institutions and the challenges of energy federalism. And Monica's book recommendation for addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club is right on topic. Here is my conversation with Monica Gattinger, recorded in early February, 2022. Monica, welcome. I'm glad you were able to join the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been in, involved uh, in one way or another with Positive Energy uh, for, I guess, six years now, and been doing the podcast for three years. So I think it's about time that we finally have an opportunity to chat a little bit about uh, about Positive Energy. Yeah, maybe, I'm really glad. Yeah, maybe a starting point would be uh, for the listener because I'd actually kind of like to, to, to talk a little bit about what the different phases were, but just what was the genesis of positive energy? Like what was the, 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 the original idea and how did, it, how did it all come together back before 2015? Thanks, Francis. Well, I guess, you know, it starts with uh, my own background, which is in energy. I've been studying energy policy and regulation for, well, a couple more decades than I'd like to admit, I suppose. <laughs> Um, 
And, you know, a lot of my work uh, to that point had really been focusing on, as you know, Canada, US and broader North American energy relations. Uh, but around kind of 2014, 2015, things were really heating up uh, domestically, uh, contentiousness around energy projects. So, you know, think back in time, Northern Gateway, uh, Keystone XL, Trans Mountain, you know, lots of uh, contentiousness around energy issues. Wasn't just pipelines, though. There were other projects, too, that were uh, raising challenges, wind in Ontario. And, you know, it was clear to me as somebody who does a lot of work in the energy space that uh, we needed to peel the onion on this and get a better understanding, like, what's really going on here? And can we bring together some of the key uh, folks in the energy space to try to work together and solution uh, on these issues? So that was the genesis of, of positive energy, really two, two things, trying to identify how to strengthen public confidence in energy decision making and pursuing that with two approaches. You know, one being using the convening power of the university to bring together leaders like yourself uh, around the table from business, government, indigenous organizations and the like. Uh, and then the second uh, to undertake a solution focused academic research to try to solve the challenges. I think maybe the only other thing I'd add, Francis, is that like you, I go to a lot of energy conferences and I found myself getting a bit frustrated, you know, that we'd get together and we you know we'd, we'd I don't know, bemoan some of the challenges in the energy right. space, all kind of throw up our hands and then do it again at the next conference. I and think it I thought, feels well, a little bit like an echo chamber. It sort of did, you know, yeah. and it was like, is there nothing that we could do to actually start to move the yardsticks on this? And so the idea was, let's do more than just have events. Let's use those events to come together frame up what the challenges are, and then actually, you know, do some research on this, come back together and move our understanding in the yardsticks uh, on an ongoing collaborative basis. Was it a challenge to get all of the players that you wanted at the table, civil society, academia, government, industry, to, to get them all to sit around the table and and not only, not only to sit in the same room, but, but then to, to commit to try and seek solutions? I would say less so than you might imagine. I yeah. think particularly in that period, 2014, 2015, you know, things were really pretty conflictual. And I, there was a recognition on the part of all parties that we needed to do things differently, right. that what we were doing wasn't working. You know, so I can remember at our um, inaugural conference, you had folks from the regulatory space, from industry, uh, from, you know, leaders of ENGOs coming together and, and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's not an accident that we're protesting individual projects in the regulatory process because we want climate action and we're not seeing policy that's mm -hmm. getting us in that direction. So where do we go? We go to some of the choke points where we can get our messages heard. Right. And at that time, that was the regulatory process. So I think there was really an interest there on the part of a variety, you know, of folks in the energy and, and broader climate space. Uh, to try to think about how can we do things differently and what can we learn and how can we collaborate to try to resolve uh, some of these challenges. Yeah, you, you use the term choke point. I think that's, that, I, I recall the conversations at the time where, where some of my colleagues uh, across, you know, across the, the, the broader energy sector were talking about the, you know, the, the inability to, to build any project, good, bad, or indifferent uh, because of those choke points. So, so let's let's talk a little bit then about you know the, the different phases because there were some some specific pieces uh, that were addressed uh, as uh, positive energy went through those phases. So the first phase was was all about the public confidence in uh, energy decision making. So what were the what were the big learnings for you 
uh, out of that, uh, that that first tranche of activity? Well, you know, it, it might either, you know, make sense to you, Francis, or or bewilder you, but it actually took us a couple of years to wrap our heads around why are we seeing these um, really conflictual um you know, dynamics yeah. in energy decision-making. So we, we framed that the public confidence challenge. Yep. Why are we seeing challenges to, to public confidence? And we really dug into that for quite a long <laughs> period of time. And as with many things, there's no simple answer, right? So I think one of the really big learnings for us there and for the network there was that, you know, this is a, a challenge that has multiple components to it. And we wrote a paper, which is like a landmark paper of that first phase called System Under Stress. Yep around energy decision-making and the challenges to energy decision-making. And we use the metaphor to describe this public confidence challenge of elephants, horses, and sitting ducks. And so start with the horses. So what we identified in that piece is that there are broader, um, you know, changes in society that are sweeping across all policy sectors, energy included, that are, you know, leading to people having perhaps less trust or less confidence in decision making. So take, for example, you know, you look at Edelman trust barometers, right? right. Has trust gone yeah. up in industry and government? Not necessarily. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's definitely, you know, fluctuated quite a bit. And in many instances, it's really it's on the down. downward trend. Mm -hmm. um, you look at, you know, people's response to decision making. It, there used to be a time, maybe some golden era from the perspective of, of certain decision makers where you would just make a decision and run with it. Yep. Now people want to be involved in decisions that affect them rightly, uh, frankly. So mm -hmm. there's a greater expectations for um, you know, involvement in, uh, in decision-making. Um, we've got a, a real shift in terms of information technology. Right. So uh, the advent of social media, of mm -hmm. Twitter, where do people go for their information? So some of the challenges that come about there, whether it's in terms of misinformation or disinformation or people living in echo chambers uh, and the like. And, you know, these sorts of horses that we refer to those broader social and technological challenges, like those horses have left the barn. We're not going to mm -hmm. turn the clock back on the decision making context. Uh, and that's something that I think was really important for decision makers to kind of get with that this is a new context for decision making. When it comes to the elephants in that uh, metaphor, there we're talking about, you know, we use the, the, the wording of many elephants in many rooms. And what we were referring to is um, basically policy gaps mm -hmm. that were washing up on the shoulders to mix metaphors, of energy regulators <laughs> and individual energy project decision-making processes, right. right? So I pointed to one of them a moment ago in terms of gaps around uh, climate action. Yep. So desire for you know meaningful climate policy and in the views of some not having that meaningful policy uh, action. Reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, lack mm -hmm. of movement on reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. So you know opposition to individual projects sometimes being far more than about that individual project. Project, being about you know indigenous rights, access to to clean drinking water, murdered and missing indigenous women, all of these really you know challenging uh, complex issues that, in the views of a lot of folks, uh, were not being addressed at the policy level. Um, you know, lack of a a uh, consensus based clear 
energy sort of vision uh, mm-hmm. for the country, right? So a lot of these gaps in policy were actually finding their way into individual energy project decision-making processes, which really weren't built right. for that. Yep. So I think, and this is where I'll end uh, on that, uh, Francis, I think, you know, I remember at one point we said, you know, we should get t-shirts made that that say regulatory reform is a necessary but insufficient solution. Uh-huh. Because our concern was that policymakers thought the problem was with regulators. Yeah. And the problem was not exclusively with regulators. This right. is a broader system issue that involves policy components, regulatory yeah. components, you know, communities, uh, industry, all, all of the above. And that to try to strengthen public confidence in decision-making requires addressing elements at all of those levels. Yeah. So who are the sitting ducks in, in this uh, story? So the sitting ducks are the policymakers and the regulators, right? right. So specifically regulators were caught in the crosshairs uh, of, of all of these uh, challenges and oftentimes then being called upon to, um, you know, address issues that were frankly outside of mandate right. or outside of scope. They don't make climate policy. Yep. You know, they don't make policy around reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, which of course frustrated things even further because those who were looking for action on those issues were finding that, you know, governments for them, the government is the regulator. It's not being responsive. But really, this was an, an issue that, you know, rested at, uh, at the policy level. So certainly regulators were very much the sitting ducks in that mm-hmm. broader uh, uh, context, but also public policymakers as well in terms of some of the uh, gaps uh, in policy uh, frameworks, notably at uh, at that time. Yeah, and and the, the, the listener may recall at the time there were a couple of instances. That I, I recall um, a few instances where, for example, National Energy Board hearings were were craft. Uh, essentially by uh, uh, people who were protesting things outside of the scope of the National Energy Board Act. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. That was, you know, those were the days of mob the mic. uh, And, uh, you know, you know, um, tremendous uh, pushback on uh, um, energy project decision-making processes. And in some instances, I mean, regulators did what they, you know, could do to try to address those those issues. But in some instances, things that were done actually frustrated the process even, you know, even further. Um, and as we know, we um, wound up at the federal level with an incoming government really committing to uh, reform right. energy project decision-making processes in, uh, you know, in the light of that. Mm. So, coming out of that first phase, what were what were the the recommendations for improving that public confidence? So it's, it's the, about the systems approach. It's about yeah. 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 So the the final report for that first three year phase is called durable balance, and what we mean by that concept is you know striking a a workable balance between competing sometimes uh, energy imperatives. So whether right. that's, you know, affordability and reliability on the on the market front, climate and other environmental impacts, um, you know, issues around security and reliability uh, of, uh, of energy uh, sources, and that will stand the test of time, right? So that durable balance, we need to be striking that uh, in energy policy and regulation, or we're not going to see decisions that, uh, that stick, whether that's on the policy front or the regulatory front. And so for us, I think importantly, public, uh, the other, you know, key um, piece coming through in that first phase is that, yes, public confidence is about communities. It's about individual citizens. We did a massive study around community uh, levels of satisfaction with energy project decision-making processes. 
but in the without investors, there will be no projects, right? right. So confidence yeah. also extends to investors, uh, the important uh, role of, of their having confidence in our energy project decision making uh, arrangements in terms of the uh, investment climate, mm -hmm. and even governments themselves having confidence in their own decision making systems that they've put yeah. in place. Yeah. So we've moved from from that phase into into the, the next phase of positive energy, and the next phase was looking to the future. But in an age of climate change, because the the, the public discourse around climate change had 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 shifted and become, I think, more uh, more present and more acute for many people. So how did that how did that change uh, the the direction and the mandate of positive energy? Well, the mandate remained the same in terms of, of public confidence, but you're absolutely right, Francis. What we did was to extend our, our kind of our gaze uh, yeah. further out into the future. So we framed uh, this second phase as um, public confidence in Canada's energy future uh, yeah. in an age of climate change. And that, you know, we started that phase about three years ago, uh, just a little over three years ago now. So that was in 2018. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that, I've really enjoyed about positive energy. Sometimes on some days it's a challenge, but on, uh -huh. on the whole, it's uh, lots of lots of fun and really rewarding. Is ensuring that we remain um, relevant and pertinent to you know the issues of the day. So to your point about climate change, but also to the context and how the context is changing in other ways. So you might recall, Francis, you know, in 2018, uh, sort of spring and then go, moving into the fall, we had a number of provincial elections where right. you know the um, Pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change of 2015, 2016, you had a lot of, you know, agreement between the federal and, and provincial governments for the most part, but that started to fall apart. Uh, so you might recall that things yeah. are really starting to heat up, uh, contentiousness around in this time, at this occasion, uh, the carbon tax. And so what we, you know, again, to your point about sort of where, how did this shift things for us? Um, we then incorporated into the research program work around polarization because there was increasing concern about, you know, and this time it was less at the level of individual projects and more at the level of our national political discourse mm -hmm. on energy and climate change. A lot of concern around polarization. So as a researcher, I'm like, okay, well, let's find out just how polarized we are. So we did quite a bit of work in public opinion survey work and with energy right. leaders to, to try to get a sense of that. Yeah. Uh, because clearly, you know, Canada's energy future in an age of climate change is not necessarily uh, something that that all Canadians can agree on in terms of directions and approach and that early you know couple of years in, in of that of this second three-year phase there was a lot of contentiousness uh, mm -hmm. in the country on uh, on these issues so we've extended the you know extended the gaze uh, forward included polarization in the work and continue to work on uh, uh, the areas that we have really you know strong uh, uh, grounding in the roles and responsibilities of policymakers yep. and of regulators and the work that that you know, we're always really trying to strive toward this, as you know, uh, Francis, consensus building in this right. space. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I, I mean, I was uh, in on, on those discussions and I recall that when particularly when the, the, the topic turned to polarization, the, the opinion research started to, uh, to become increasingly important to uh, to the discussions and the deliberation. Um, and presumably that's going to continue as we move forward. How did things change? Because I, I mean, I know 
um, the the work of positive energy was was having an impact on the sort of the discourse uh, in in industry uh, with uh, with governments. Uh, how did it change, uh, or did it uh, change uh, or impact what was happening uh, at the University of Ottawa? Did, did positive energy have a, have an impact in terms of uh, in terms of academia? Oh, that's a great question. I would say without a doubt. Uh, okay. Absolutely. So, you know, not only did we have um, and do we have researchers at the University of Ottawa on the research team. So at any given time, you know, there's 15 to 20 odd uh, researchers on on the team. And some of those are from the University of Ottawa. Others are from across Canada and, and even internationally. Yep. But over the course of, of positive energy, we've involved multiple students as well. Students at the undergraduate level, at the master's level, uh, doctoral level, we've had postdoctoral uh, fellows. And that really, I think, shaped, you know, their experience uh, right. at the university. I think the university also, um, you know, and this aligned with where the university has been heading. Um, we've got great strength at the University of Ottawa in public policy. I mean, if you listen to any, you know, news program, radio, television, frequently you've got our researchers uh, commenting on questions of public policy. We've got a real strength on the policy front. And I think the approach of positive energy, this, you know, using the convening power, working really closely with policymakers, with industry, you know, folks in civil society, that aligns extremely well with the, you know, strategic direction of the university in terms mm -hmm. of impact and the way that they think about impact. Right. So that it's more than just, you know, writing and, and publishing your latest peer reviewed journal article in, you know, the, the top tier journal that is probably yeah. only read by specialists, not necessarily by industry, yeah. uh, but also, you know, undertaking, yes, that credible, rigorous uh, academic research, but making it available and accessible in a way that's digestible for for decision makers. So I think it, it you know, it really was Position well in the context of uh, university strength and in the context of the directions it's been heading, and definitely informed those as well. You know, I know from uh, um, just from the out from the get go, uh, the university has been solidly behind our work all the way up to the level of the president, right. uh, and that I think is in part because of you know the impact that they see um, the you know what, what they would refer to as thought leadership um, mm -hmm. you know spearheading and piloting new kinds of approaches to how academics can work with those uh, outside of the campus yeah well I, I mean and we we've seen um, the, the the results and the output uh, of coming out of positive energy in uh, Publications that one normally <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't uh, expect to see um, academics such as yourself writing uh, in in trade publications and, and trade blogs um, and op eds on some of these topics uh, the 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 access to a different kind of media I think has resulted in in a lot of this work is that for, from my perspective that I haven't seen that from from other programs. What is it? Is it the, the uh, oil bulletin that that uh, yep. I'll often see articles that you've penned? I don't read other uh, academics in uh, the oil bulletin. Yeah. Well, I think you know. I think the the unfortunate reality, Francis, in in for some of this stuff is that. 
the incentive structure isn't there for academics to do this kind of work. I mean, it's okay. changing a little bit over time, but um, you know, I and many of my colleagues who do this this kind of work, it's almost as if universities speak out of two sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're okay. like, you know, yes, go do all this great stuff, get us the earned media ratings, you know, all of that, uh, uh, all of that great stuff from a uh, from an institutional perspective. But on the other hand, if you look at the processes for uh, tenure and promotion at universities it is what have you published in a peer-reviewed journal lately okay so um, so so, so the ins- yeah so right. the incentive structure isn't necessarily there for academics to engage okay. in this kind of work and those who do are often doing it actually at a cost to their you know kind of career if you want to put it that way uh inside uh, inside the university i know the university of ottawa has has tried to be much better uh on that front but there are still Absolutely, there are still challenges uh, there, and I think there the new generation of academics. And you might you probably see this on Twitter, Francis. Like they're active, really active to the point where I'm reading some of the stuff they're doing on Twitter, and I'm like, where do you guys find the time? (laughs) This engaged and this on point and this up to speed, and you know, there's lots of uh, lots of engagement. uh, And I'm not just talking about University of Ottawa, but but others as well. I think that that kind of new generation of academics is much more interested interested in being engaged with society and in actually solving problems. So I, I, you know, remain cautiously optimistic that institutions will, uh, uh, will keep pace with that and, and align the incentive structures accordingly. But as with, you know, many large bureaucracies, these things take time. So, so publisher parish might one day expand to include more than the traditional peer-reviewed publications? Well, it, it, I, I would say yes, and I think it already is to some extent, um, but, you know, I'll let you in on a, a little secret. Like when I put forward my um, application for promotion to full professor, it had to be framed really carefully and <laughs> consciously about how much does appearing in front of a parliamentary committee count for? How right. much does does, you know, X dozens and dozens of dozens of op-eds count for? How much does being invited regularly to speak at yeah. industry and, yep. you know, policy conferences, how much does that count for? And, and it doesn't really count uh, in quotation marks, but you can frame things in such a way and select your external evaluators in such a way that, mm. that you know, that you've got folks saying, yes, this work is having an impact and it is important. And I can recall, you know, one of the... Um, uh, the way this process works, you've got external evaluators, they write a letter saying whether they think the person should get the promotion or not. And one of the external evaluators said something to the effect of Gattinger is an outlier, but of the best kind. And I thought, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. high praise, right? Yeah. And what they meant by that was an outlier from the classic mold, yes. um, but one that is having an impact uh, on the on the policy space. So yeah. it's, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it will come, Francis, but uh, I think it's still got some ways some ways to go because what you often find then is academics who aren't yet tenured, they put their nose to the grindstone uh, right. where the incentive structure uh, is. Yeah, yeah, and and being somebody outside of the academic community, looking at you know what you know in, in what would we value in in these policy discussions uh, and uh, the the overall up, uh, attempt to improve. Improve public policy. Is it uh, publication in an academic journal, or is it appearances before parliamentary committees? And so, you know, from from my perspective, it's it's uh, you know the degree to which you and, and and colleagues are are able to participate in the public policy dialogue in the public square as opposed to in the ivory tower. 
Oh, completely agreed. And I think, you know, again, back to, to, you know, bringing this back to positive energy specifically, it's, it's, you know, it's that in terms of yes, undertaking that um, rigorous academic research, but then, yep. you know, a making sure that it's relevant for people yeah. like you uh, yep. and, and B making sure that it gets out there, you know, as, as you know, Francis, we, you know, yes, we do the publication in peer review journals and, and, and all of that, but what appears on our website and what gets promoted as it were to, to folks in the um, practitioner space is something that looks a lot more like a, a think tank publication, right? There's yeah. reports yeah. Um, and that's a conscious choice because I'm assuming being Francis, you don't sit down and, you know, uh, um, eagerly await the latest um, edition of, you know, energy policy <laughs> journal, uh, you're more likely to look at uh, a report that, you know, has an executive summary, is more digestible, written in uh, a language and, and tone that uh, speaks to decision makers. Yeah. Hey, Monica, one of the things that I ask folks uh, that come on the podcast is about their journey. Um, so, so, uh, wanted to tell us a little bit about, about your journey, like when, when you were, when you were, uh, a, 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 a child on the playground, did you always, uh, <laughs> dream of, 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 of running a, a, a positive energy sort of think tank? That's a great question. Um, boy, I've never had somebody ask me the origin story right up to the playground, Francis. So I think that the, the short answer to that part of the question is, uh, no, um, <laughs> Uh, but I have always been interested in, and I say always, let's say, you know, sort of going to, to you know, late teens, early 20s, mm -hmm. interested in that intersection between business, government and society. Right. Uh, you know, so I started my university uh, studies in a commerce program I have a Bachelor of Commerce degree. And in the course of doing that degree, and I was planning, Francis, just go into business like mm -hmm. that was that was the plan. And then I took this course with the innocuous title of the socio-political environment of business. Uh, and it was public policy after that. Right. Um, you know, that was at a time when the GST was being introduced, free trade was in the news, mm -hmm. like this is, you know, free trade election time, all of uh, yep. that period, and just got so um, engaged with this idea of the way in which government and business uh, interface with one another. So I went off after that, did a master's in public administration, uh, and, uh, you know, understanding a little bit more about sort of policy decision making and then a PhD in public policy mm -hmm. and the PhD with one foot in economics and one foot in political science. So really right. bringing together that business government society uh, relations piece. But I think probably for purposes of this discussion, what's most relevant is that like I started in this space that we're talking about as an energy um, person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was doing my master's degree, I started work, doing work with a professor at uh, Carleton University, who uh, some of your listeners might uh, remember, Bruce Dern. Oh, and, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Bruce, you know, energy scholar extraordinaire. Yep. And I can remember, and Bruce knows this because I've told him, um, that I, I worked with him as a research assistant and I thought it was the most boring, dry, you know, <laughs> topic here you could ever and look at imagine. Where you are now. You know, I was working with him. We, we ended up authoring a book together around energy regulatory governance. I thought, oh my God, energy regulation. This is like, I was like researching the history of uh, the Alberta Energy Regulator. You know, at that time, it yeah. was the Energy Resources and Conservation Board. And like yeah. literally Francis going back into the archives, reading microfiche. <laughs> the history of this place, you know, learning about alternative dispute resolution and performance-based regulation, all this stuff that, oh my word, I just, you know, is, it was just, I was glad I was getting paid for it. Let me just put it that way. Um, but then, you know, when I came out of my PhD, 
um, increasingly invited to be, you know, speaking, uh, uh, participating in different publications around uh, around energy issues. And then increasingly, back to the beginning of positive energy, seeing the extent to which energy was becoming a really contentious political issue with lots of complexity to the policy decision making. And I think that's where I was like, okay, now, <laughs> now I see where I might have some value add uh, in, uh, in this space and beginning to see students as well becoming increasingly mm -hmm. uh, interested in the issues, but often coming at the issues exclusively through a climate lens. Right. And I think that's one of the things that's a bit different from my perspective is that I come at the issues through an energy lens mm -hmm. with climate being one imperative among many that energy policy and regulation uh, right. must, be, uh, must be attending to. So what's next now for positive energy? What's, uh, what's phase three uh, gonna be attempting to tackle? Yeah, so we're very excited about uh, about phase three. And I should add before getting into it, you know, this was supposed to be a three year project, Francis. I remember. I remember. I've failed we, miserably. We had, no, there was so much unfinished business at the end of the first phase. <laughs> well, these are long term, you know, these are long term problems. And I think, um, you know, kidding aside, I've just been very um just really humbled to see the the success of the program, um, the extent of engagement uh, of folks in the network, the impact of the research, the credibility uh, of the work that we've created a forum that did not exist before. We used that convening power of the university to create that neutral nonpartisan space and, and that there's still a need. Yes. Uh, there's yeah. still a need for that. There's still a need for that convening. There's a need for the, the research. So where are we going next? Well, you know, in line with your point about kind of staying with or keeping with things that, that, uh, uh, are relevant and pertinent to the time. Um, you know, we we see growing alignment and um, policy intent around net zero. Yep. And yep. so for us, you know, we're always in this public confidence wheelhouse, right? How do we build and maintain public confidence in decision making uh, for net for net zero? Um, and one of our observations would be in terms of the work that we've done over the course of the last, uh, I guess now six years, is that, you know, Canada tends to be um, quite high on ambition, mm -hmm. and sometimes a bit, you know, less strong on the follow through and the how uh, of all of this. And I think this is increasingly becoming recognized within the energy uh, and climate space that the moving yeah. from the what to the how yeah. on emissions reductions is, you know, that is, has got to be job one. Uh, so for us, you know, there are many different organizations and entities uh, contributing uh, to, to this space, um, which is terrific. Our sort of um, contribution, our value add, we see in four uh, key areas. Mm -hmm. um, so one is to look at institutional innovation or what we call institutional innovation. So there's a lot of talk about technical innovation, rightly, when it comes yep. to net zero, what are all the new technologies we're going to need? Um, where, where we come at this from is, well, we also need to innovate our institutions mm -hmm. to enable emissions reductions, whether that's to help technology deployment, encourage and incentivize emissions uh, reductions. So a lot of that work is likely to be happening for us uh, in the regulatory space and in that interface between policymakers and, uh, and regulators. Mm -hmm. So that's area one. Um, second area, again, that we see sometimes being, I think, a bit neglected in terms of um, 
the the key pathways, as it were, to to reducing emissions, and that's you know what I think of increasingly as the political pathways, okay. um, and and intergovernmental collaboration, the need for the federal government and provincial and territorial governments to be working collect you know collaboratively and with other governments as well, municipalities, indigenous governments, mm -hmm. uh, notably, uh, and and again an area where we've done a lot of uh, work on that sort of what we call energy federalism. Uh, space. Mm -hmm. the, the third area that we think, you know, deserves more attention and is not getting necessarily as much uh, recognition as, uh, as it could or should relates to energy security. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is, you know, the reliable, affordable uh, energy sources. Right. And if we don't keep our eye on that imperative, um, like a very sharp eye on that imperative, uh, we're likely to see a lot of pushback around uh, around climate action and emissions reductions. So keeping a really sharp eye on on cost and, and prices and ensuring uh, energy is there uh, mm -hmm. when we need it. And then the fourth area is public opinion. So you were mm -hmm. mentioning earlier about the public mm -hmm. opinion work that we do. We've got this great collaboration and partnership with Nanos Research. As you know, Nick Nanos chairs our advisory council. Yep. Uh, we're going to continue that partnership uh, with Nanos because we think it's really crucial to on an ongoing basis you know really understand where Canadians are at on these issues and and peel the onion a little bit more than than maybe some of the um public opinion research that uh, um, is undertaken, you know, across a whole host of sectors. I mean, we right. are just focusing on that energy and, and climate space. So getting a bead on uh, on where Canadians are at on these issues. All right. So here's here's the critical question. How optimistic are you that we're actually going to be able to move the, the, the markers uh, in this space? I mean, this the first one, for, for example, and, uh, you know, can we uh, actually uh, innovate um, from an institutional standpoint. That that's been a real challenge. Um, what what's your what's your what? I mean, presumably you you're an optimist because you know you're we're trying to move this forward. Uh, so am I. I'm part of the collaborative. But but it, what, what what would be the basis of your optimism? That yeah, I mean, I think you, you you've uh, pegged me there, uh, Francis. I mean, I couldn't do this work if I wasn't <laughs> right, an optimism, right. and you know, we called it positive energy for for a reason. <laughs> you know, there there are days that I I you know I worry. There are things that keep me up at night uh, for sure. But in terms of of what makes me optimistic, um, I think you know the the engagement of uh, all the folks in our network that says to me, we're not the only one that thinks these issues are uh, are important. I think a growing recognition that I see, um, you know, among uh, um, political and policy uh, makers, among folks in civil society that, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the need for emissions reductions, there's greater alignment there across business, government, uh, industry, and civil society. Um, and, and I think greater recognition that, you know, <laughs> to, somebody put it really well the other day, they said, you know, it's not complicated, but it's complex, right? Yeah, so yeah, emissions reduction is yeah. not complicated, like reduce emissions, that's not complicated, but it is extremely complex right. to actually do it. I think that, you know, gives me some optimism strangely, that there's growing recognition of those complexities. So, you know, somebody like myself coming from an energy background, oftentimes all you see is like train wrecks on the horizon. You're like, okay, I see this policy choice that worries me a great deal because it's likely to have an unintended consequences, an unintended consequence, 
that might, you know, ultimately not serve the objective that, uh, you know, that uh, policymakers are after. But I, I'm beginning to see more recognition that we need to take what, what we refer to as integrated approaches mm -hmm. to uh, energy and climate, that you really need to bring both the climate lens and the energy lens. We often see these communities and government departments, they're in silos, they're yes. not necessarily working together. Yeah. But I, I think we're seeing some growing recognition that that isn't actually working as well uh, as, uh, you know, a, a, as we'd like, and that we are going to need to start to grapple with those complexities uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, of uh, net zero and pursuits towards net zero. And, and maybe one of the reasons why we've got challenges with respect to public confidence in the decision making is the fact that those silos exist. Oh, I think I think that's absolutely right, uh, Francis. You mm. can probably point to you know a number of uh, of examples. I mean, just look at what's going on in in Europe right now with some mm. of the skyrocketing uh, energy prices and and fuel shortages. And I saw just recently some public opinion polling data come out of. Um, the UK uh, around uh, people's attitudes around net zero, people's attitudes around climate action, and um, you know the 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 desire for affordable, reliable energy uh, yeah. for many folks, uh, understandably, trumps uh, you know trumps climate action, and I think that's that's a huge um, um, you know. Uh, um, indicator and uh, um, you know area that we should be thinking about to make sure that we get uh, that we get this right. Yeah. Monica, one of the things I always wrap up with is I ask guests on the podcast about a book. Uh, and so, uh, what book would you recommend to the uh, the listener to 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 pick up and read? Well, this is, it's not a book I'm reading currently, but it's a book that I just have so much time uh, for. Came out in, I believe, 2017. It's uh, Omar Alakad's American War. And that book, uh, Francis, if you haven't read it, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, it's set uh, in the future uh, in the United States, the, where there has been a, another civil war uh, over um, the uh, administration's decision to uh, prohibit uh, the use of fossil fuels. And so you've got, you know, this is like 100 years uh, in the future type of thing. And, and you've got uh, a very divided and, and polarized uh, United States. And there are elements to that book that, to my mind, are, are you know, they, they sort of ring true to some of the issues we see these days around polarization. So I think it's a, a, a very important kind of cautionary tale and also mm -hmm. uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily well written. Boy, talk about staying on, on topic and on theme. All right. So uh, Omar el Akab, American War. We That's will right. add that to our Flux Capacitor Book Club. And Monica, thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to join the conversation. Really appreciate chatting with you. Thanks for the invitation, Francis. It's been fun. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. And a reminder, this podcast now has a website, which can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of The Flux Capacitor, and let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter and at electricity.ca. Mm -hmm.